Hey everyone, welcome to Embers in the Dark, a podcast that seeks to open up scripture as God's revealed word and um, seek truth, understand truth as he's revealed it, and then apply it to our lives. We'll have sermons and conversations and and a few other different things that just seek to open up and expound on God's word, uh, and again, just to, to bring it into application into our lives. Enjoy. We just thank you for your word. Grant us grace this morning uh, and help us to understand it more and more. Grant me wisdom, grant me clarity, grant me grant me grace. Help us, Lord, to understand your word so that we may understand you. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. The parable of the lamp. The parable of the lamp. And he, that is Jesus, he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. The lesson of this parable, we'll start with that. The lesson of this parable is about heeding what you hear. About taking the truth that you hear or read and applying it, working at it. In the same way that you would not light a lamp or a candle or a lantern and put it under a basket or under a bed. So too, do you not hear the word? Are you not supposed to hear the word and then ignore it? A lamp is lit and put on a stand. So too is the word opened and not hidden away. And just for context, the lamp that is referred to here is an oil lamp. And similar to like Aladdin's lamp, that's kind of the the most famous lamp that we can think of other than the lamps in our house. Um, But it's like Aladdin's lamp, but it's going to be simpler. So the lamp... In Galilee, the lamp in first century Judea is going to be a simple clay um, container almost with oil in it with a a, a wick sticking out of it. It's a round container made of clay that has oil in it, olive oil mostly, with a wick sticking out of it. So this is the lamp. And you don't light a lamp that's, that's burning with a wick and then put it under a bed or under a basket. Because it's not going to do anything. Second, the lamp in the Old Testament is frequently a metaphor. And it is a metaphor for three things. God, the Messiah, and God's Word. First, just as an example, 2 Samuel 22, 29. For you are my lamp, O Lord. My God who lightens my darkness. So first in the Old Testament, a lamp is a metaphor for God. Second, the Messiah. Second Kings 8.19. Yet the Lord was not willing to destroy Judah for the sake of David his servant, since he promised to give a lamp to him and to his sons forever. This is the promise of the Messiah. And then thirdly, it is God's word, or the Torah, which is the law. 
as we'll read probably in a couple weeks, Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So here in Mark, based on the context, and it's important, the context, based on the context and the meaning and what we know as people who read our Bibles, the lamp here in Mark that Jesus is referring to, it's pretty clear that it's all three. It is Jesus himself as the Messiah, who is God, eternal word, and it is God's word. So here Mark, when Jesus says, you do not light a lamp and then hide it away, what he's referring to is himself, himself as the Messiah, himself as the eternal God, and the Lord's word. Jesus is the lamp of God who has come to bring light and revelation And he brings it by teaching and preaching, which is what we've seen already. Chapter 1, verse 38, 39, chapter 2, verse 2. Jesus comes to preach and teach the word. Jesus is the lamp of God who has come to bring the lamp of God, as it were. So the lesson for this parable is, do not take what Jesus has come to reveal and hide it or ignore it. Do not take Jesus and hear what he says and then reject him. And then do not take his words and reject his words. Specifically. Generally, do not take God's word and ignore it. Do not take take God's word, hear it, listen to it, study it, and act upon it. Do not take God's word and not do those things. Just as it is silly and illogical to light a lamp and then hide the light, so too is it silly and illogical to listen to Jesus or read, the, read God's word and then just ignore it. You don't light a lamp and put it under your bed or put it under a basket. You don't light a lamp and then hide the light. What Jesus is saying is, you don't look at me, not, not me, but Jesus. Jesus is saying, you don't look at me and hear what I'm saying and then just pass it off. You don't let the word go in one ear and out the other. That's that. Next, I just want to take a few minutes and look at verses 24 and 25 and and just kind of explain those because they reinforce what Jesus is saying here. It's not a parable, but it's, it's an explanation of the parable using another type of proverb. So here's verse 24 and 25. And he said to them, pay attention to what you hear. So he says, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And then he says, pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Now, for some of you, this may sound familiar. Jesus uses the same type of language in Matthew 7 and in Luke 6. In Matthew 7, it's used in a negative fashion. In Luke 6, it's used in both negative and positive fashion. And here in Mark 4, it's used in both as well. Matthew 7, Jesus says, and this is probably the most famous verse right now in our culture for people who who misquote it. Matthew 7 is, do not judge, do not judge so that you are not judged. For whatever judgment you judge with, It'll be given to you. With, what, with whatever measure you measure with, that type of measure will be given to you. 
And in Luke, he says, he says something similar. He uses the same thing, but he uses it for condemnation and judgment and forgiveness. So Mark uses it for measuring what we hear, and we'll get into that. But Matthew uses it for judgment. And then Luke, in Luke, he, he uses it for judgment and forgiveness. And so it's a proverb that basically says, in whatever measure you are measuring with, God is going to measure back to you and then add more to it. So in the context of Matthew, he's saying, if you are condemning somebody and you're using a measurement to condemn them with, you are going to be judged by that same measure that you measure with. And so the scale is going to be even. But then God is actually going to add more. And Luke, it's the same thing, but he adds forgiveness, a positive side of it. And so here in Mark, what Jesus is saying is that those who hear the message and accept the message will receive from God more insight into the truths of the kingdom. Whoever those who hear the message and reject it will become more blind to it. So in the context of Mark, in the context, in the context of this passage, in the parable of the Lamb that Jesus is using to explain something, we are to be nurturing what we have heard from God so that it grows. And then God will actually add to that growth. The more that we heed Jesus' words, the more we will get. But in a negative light, if we do not nurture what we have heard, we will lose what little we've been given. That is, that's what he's saying in verses 24 to 25. The one who listens and hears and acts and studies and labors to learn and to know and understand the word of God, that person will be given more. But the one who does not study or read or seek to know will lose the little that they did have. For to the one who has, has what? The one who has heard and accepted and received. To the one who has that, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So that's the context. Think of it, uh, just to use an illustration, think of it as, as like a, a, a growth chart. Whether it's, we'll use investments because that's easy. If it's a growth chart and you've got, say we've got a big growth chart up here. And you start off with a little bit of investment and you, you keep investing, it's going to grow and grow and grow and grow. Because it's a good investment. Investing in God's word is, is always a good investment. And the more you invest, the more it's going to grow. We can see this in the parable of the talents, which is not about talents or skills, but about money. Jesus is using the parable of the talents to explain um, kingdom growth. If you do not invest but instead bury it in the ground, your investment will not grow and you'll be held accountable for that lack of growth. That's what's happening here in Mark 4, verses 21 to 25. Jesus is saying, if you are, if you are taking a lamp and lighting it and keeping it out on the stand and growing in that light, you will grow more and more and more. But if you hear and you basically light it, but then put it away, you're not only not going to grow, you're actually going to decay. Another one, it's almost like muscular atrophy. If you don't use your muscles, they're going to shrink and continue to shrink until the point where they're not there anymore. And the lesson, what Jesus is saying here with, with regard to the parable of the lamp, is that application of truth brings growth. 
Those who hear the message and accept it, going back to the parable of the sower, those who hear and accept it will receive more insight into the truth of God's kingdom, but those who hear the message and reject it, those who hide their lamps, will become more and more blind to God's truth. That's there. At the end, we'll come back and apply all of these, but let's move on to the parable of the growing seed, verses 26 to 29. And Jesus said to them, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. It's going to sound weird, but this one is about how the kingdom grows apart from human effort. The kingdom of God comes without any human efforts. It is independent of human activity. The seed is planted, and it is only God who makes it grow in his providence and in his sovereignty. Now you're going to say to me, well, that doesn't make sense based on what we just read. There's two seemingly, I'm going to say seemingly, there's two seemingly contradictory messages here. The first one, going back to last week in the parable of the sower and the parable of the lamp, the first one is, hear the word, apply the word so that you grow. Light a lamp and put it on the stand. You make an effort to grow. You don't hide the lamp. You study, you learn, you dig into God's word. And when you do, you'll grow and grow and grow and grow. Human effort. But the second one is, what is planted does not grow by human effort. And they're seemingly contradictory, but, but they're not. And I'll explain why. The difference is what type of growth we're looking at. Again, it's personal growth and kingdom growth. When we move from the first two parables, the parable of the sower and the parable of the lamp, into the next two parables, that of the seed growing and the mustard seed, we move from personal growth to kingdom growth. From personal growth to kingdom growth. As we see in scripture, as we saw with the parable of the lamp, we are responsible for our own personal growth. We are responsible for our personal growth and the things of God. However, we are not responsible for the growth of God's kingdom. And I'll explain that. We are responsible for personal growth, but we are not responsible for the growth of God's kingdom. We are responsible in that kingdom. We are responsible for planting and for watering, for being salt and light. But we are not responsible for its growth. This parable is about how the kingdom grows, God's kingdom, how God's kingdom grows apart from human effort. How what the sower does is sow and water and wait. And just wait. Sow and water. Plant and water and wait. Again, we'll unpack this more in the application. But in terms of God's kingdom, what this parable teaches us is that God is at work even if we do not see it. When we plant seeds, we can't make that seed grow. We can water it, but we cannot make it grow. Just like leaven in bread. When you put yeast or a, a leaven rock into bread, all we can do is add the leaven. We cannot make it rise. That is the work of God's providence and sovereignty. How then does the kingdom grow? 
His people, us as his people, live our lives day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year. You get, you get the image. We plant, we water, and that's it. We live and move and have our being as his people, as salt and light, and like a seed that is planted or leaven that is added to bread. We don't know what's going on until the plant sprouts through the soil or we see the dough rise. But the reason it sprouts and the reason it grows and the reason the leaven crate causes the bread to rise is not because of us or our work, but because of God and his work. When we share the word of God with someone, when we plant seeds, whenever we preach, whenever we proclaim, whenever we shine the light of Christ in that dark world out there, all we are doing is planting new seeds and watering old seeds but we do not cause the seeds to grow. No matter how much we till the soil or water the ground or aerate the ground or plow, we do nothing to make the kingdom grow. And we'll uh, we'll revisit this in the application. So the lesson is, personal growth is our responsibility, but kingdom growth is God's responsibility. The kingdom of God is, comes without any human efforts. It is independent of human activity. The seed is planted, but it is only God who makes it grow into a plant. Again, we'll we'll come back to that. Third, the parable of the mustard seed, verses 30 to 32. Parable of the mustard seed. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. The lesson of the parable of the mustard seed is that what starts out as insignificant will grow into grand proportions, even to the point where it takes over the garden. What this is, is looking forward to the end, when the seed is is finished growing. When it is finished growing, God's reign will be seen. God's providence, God's control, God's kingship will be seen, even though right now it is not. Even though right now it is obscure. Even though right now we are seemingly fighting for our lives as Bible-believing Christians. In the end, when the harvest comes... God's reign will not be obscure. Context again, because this is another passage that we need to explain a bit of the context. The mustard seed is not the smallest seed on the earth. Is Jesus therefore wrong? Let me say this. God's word is true and trustworthy. Because God is true and trustworthy. If we find something that is seemingly wrong, the wrongness is not in the word. The wrongness is in us. The issue is not God's word. It's not the Bible. The issue is the interpreter. So, let's explain this. First of all, the ESV, which is what I'm reading from. um, I I like the ESV, but it's not the best translation in terms of the Greek. The the NASB or or the NIV would be a lot closer to the Greek. Um, And we'll get into that. So 
there, there's three explanations, and I'll go from weakest explanation to strongest explanation. The weakest is that some people say that that is the smallest seed that they were aware of at that time. And so Jesus was saying, this is the smallest seed, um, and even though being omniscient and being God, he knew it wasn't, but he just said it was the smallest seed. Uh, even though it, it wasn't, that was what they knew to be the smallest seed. So that's one explanation, and it's a bit weak. Um, a second explanation is going back to the translation. I'll read the, uh, here's the NASB, which is New American Standard. The verse says, It is like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, etc., etc. And so the key there is, sown upon the soil, it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, which is a big difference between saying it's the smallest seed on the earth. Because when we hear earth, we think the smallest seed in the world. When the proper translation is, it's the smallest seed that goes into the soil. And the key is sown. It's the smallest seed that is sown in the soil. So the smallest seed is the black orchid. But the black orchid is not sown in the soil for the purpose of harvest. The mustard seed, then, is the smallest seed that is sown in the soil for the purpose of harvest. So that's the second explanation of, of looking at what Jesus is actually saying here. The, the mustard seed is the smallest seed that goes into the soil for the purpose of being sown for harvest. The third explanation kind of builds on that as well, and that is just in the same way that we see in verse 24 and 25 where Jesus is using a measure to explain what he's saying. The mustard seed is actually a Jewish proverb. It was a Jewish proverb that they used where the mustard seed, even though it wasn't the smallest seed, it was a proverb that was used to denote smallness. And so here Jesus is saying, here's a soil and we're going to plant in the soil and I'm going to use your own proverb to explain this. And here's the mustard seed, which is the smallest seed that we use for planting. Here's what it means. It grows up and does this. And so the third one, which kind of builds on the second, is, is a bit stronger and, and Jesus is just using a well-known proverb. Uh, you, can, you can read a bit of Josephus even to see some of that. Josephus was uh, a Jewish scholar that uh, was writing not long after Jesus died. Anyway, so Jesus is using popular images to explain God's truth. It's exactly what he's doing with the parable. And now he's using almost, he's using a parable within a parable, if that makes sense. So moving on from that context... The lesson is what starts out as insignificant will grow into grand proportions, taking over the garden. What do we mean by taking over the garden? We know what Jesus is saying by here's a really small seed and it's going to grow up into this bigger plant. We know what he means by that. But what, is he, what, what do I mean by taking over the garden? Here's, here's a quote from Pliny the Elder who is writing around the same time as well. The mustard plant grows entirely wild when it has been sown, it is difficult to get it free of the soil because when the seed falls, it germinates right away. The mustard seed is not only a really small seed that is going to grow up into this big plant that birds can, you know, rest in, but the mustard seed is a threat to the garden. 
in the same way that the kingdom of God is a threat to the garden of the world. The gospel is a threat to the current system. Whatever system we live in that is created by man, the gospel will always be a threat. The gospel of God, the truth of God will always be a threat to the current system that we live in. And so like a mustard seed in the garden, wherever it is planted, the gospel of the kingdom of God subverts the gospel of the kingdom of man. What starts out as insignificant will grow into grand proportions and take over the garden. Let's look at uh, verses 33 and 34 as we summarize just before we head into application. Verses 33 to 34. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. So do you see verse 33? Just, just a brief aside. Verse 33. With many parables, he spoke the word to them. So here Jesus is preaching and teaching the word of God, but he's doing it with parables. Jesus' public ministry was in parables. And as we've seen, the purpose of parables is to reveal and to conceal. Both, a double-edged sword, if you will, to reveal to some and to conceal for others. What it does is it separates insiders from outsiders. We saw this when Jesus quoted Isaiah 6. He teaches outsiders in parables so that they cannot understand. And he teaches the insiders the meaning of them. Parables either enlighten or obscure depending on whether we are hearing and accepting what we are hearing. Those who are unable to hear find parables opaque and confusing. And hearing determines whether one is an insider or an outsider. Hearing determines whether one is an insider or an outsider. Let's, let's apply this. Let me, let me, especially that last statement, let's take this and apply this. First, the first point of application is that we have personal responsibility for growth. Look at verse 20. We'll just go back to there, but verse 20. Those that were sown on the soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it. And then verse 23. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Verse 24. He said to them, pay attention to what you hear. Pay attention to what you hear. And then verse 33. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. Jesus says, pay attention to what you're hearing. We have personal responsibility for growth. As someone who hears the word or reads the word, the most foolish thing you can do is ignore the word. When we fail to heed it or to be an active hearer, this is the same thing as, as rejecting it. If we hear the word and then don't pay attention to it, we are in effect rejecting it. When we reject it, we prove ourselves to be on the outside. Here's where the disciples come in. Turn back, uh, turn back in my Bible, but turn back to, to 
chapter 4. We'll stay in chapter 4. Verse 10. When he was alone, those around him with the twelve, so the disciples, asked him about the parables. They asked him about the parables. In the same passage in Matthew, it says that the disciples went to Jesus and asked him to explain it. Disciples hear and accept the word, even if they do not understand it. Disciples hear and accept the word, even if they do not understand it, but then they seek to understand it. The difference is that admirers, outsiders, hear the word, they do not accept it. They do not seek to understand it. This goes back to uh, the 4th century and, and Augustine, 3rd and 4th century, with Augustine who kind of coined the phrase, phrase faith-seeking understanding. We hear, we accept, and even if we do not understand, we trust, we have faith, and we seek understanding. That is what it means to be a disciple. To be a follower of Christ is to hear and accept the word, but then seek to understand it if we do not understand it. Admirers and outsiders hear the word, but they do not accept it, and they do not seek to understand it. Instead, instead they make excuses. It's too hard. It's too confusing. I don't want to do it. You know, I, you ask people if they've been reading their Bible, and they say, yeah, you know, I should be reading my Bible. I'm not really interested in it. It's really hard. A lot of the times, those people aren't Christians. Like, that's what it comes down to. If we don't have a desire to read God's word, it's not God's word that the problem, that's the problem. It's, it's us. Disciples hear and accept the word and then seek to understand it if they do not understand it. The point is, is that we have personal responsibility for our individual growth. We could go into other responsibilities of, of fathers, church leaders, to, um, for their responsibility for others as well, but we won't. We have individual responsibility for our individual growth. We will all give an answer to what we have done, to how we have listened, to how we have heard, to how we have obeyed. We will all give an account. 2 Corinthians 5.10 we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account. I realize that is heavy. I'll preach us back alive at the end. Second, the second point of application. This is against a system of growth. The second point is that this is against a system of growth. Let's look at 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, just, just briefly. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 to 9. Uh, just help us understand, going back to the parable of the secretly growing seed and how we do not um, work to increase God's kingdom, how God's kingdom does not increase with our efforts. 1 Corinthians 3, 5 to 9. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Only servants through whom you have believed as the Lord assigned to each. 
I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. We see the same thing with Matthew 13.33 in the parable of the leaven. Or John 3.8 and what it means to be regenerate and born again. There is something at work in the growth of the kingdom that we cannot put our finger on. Something that we cannot grasp with our hearts and our minds or our hands. There is something that we cannot bottle. Scripture is against a system of growth. I won't trace the history, but we've come to the point through Charles Finney and revivalism, through the seeker-sensitive movement, through the sinner's prayer, into church growth formulas, where over and over again we try to rely on systems of growth. But the truth is, is that we cannot get people into the church. We cannot, by our efforts, increase God's kingdom. We cannot add people or increase our numbers by any means which we possess. We cannot do it by doing the right things or having the right songs or putting the right words in the bulletin. Even if we made this the most attractive church ever and put roller coasters everywhere and had a million people in here, we would not be adding anyone to God's kingdom. We would have a false church, but that's another sermon. We cannot increase God's kingdom with anything we do. Scripture is against a system of growth. A few months ago when we looked at Jeremiah, we looked at how God actually spoils the works of our hands. How when we forget God and think that we can do things on our own and think that we can come up with a system and just follow that system, God comes. In his mercy, he comes to spoil the works of our hands. He comes and sends a Jeremiah to pluck up and to tear down what man has built so that God can destroy everything and build something that he wants. Scripture is against a system of growth. Third is corporate responsibility. We have individual responsibility, but there is also corporate responsibility. What do I mean by that? When we look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, Paul says to Timothy that the church, the body of Christ, is a pillar and a buttress of the truth. The church of Christ is a pillar and a buttress of the truth. Of the truth. In Revelation 1.20, when John sees Christ, falls down as dead, and starts to see the vision, what he sees is Christ standing in the midst of seven lampstands. And the lampstands is the church, the seven churches. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. 
And I don't have a lamp, but I brought this up, so I'm not one for um, illustrations, but I'm going to leave that there. So picture that as a lampstand. I want, to, I want us to understand this mystery as best as we are able. The church is a pillar and a buttress of the truth. And as it says in Revelation, the church is the lamp stand. And so the lamp is Christ, and the lamp is the Word of God. And if the church is the lamp stand, holding up the lamp and the Word of God, and it is a pillar and a buttress of the truth, what does that mean for us? It means we have corporate responsibility. In Revelation chapter 2 and 3, Christ's final message to the church, all seven churches, is he who has an ear, let him hear. He who has an ear, let him hear. As the church, we have a corporate responsibility to be a pillar and a buttress of the truth. We have a corporate responsibility to be the lampstand. We have a corporate responsibility to hold up God's truth for the world, regardless of the cost. We have a responsibility to stand for the truth, to uphold the truth, to promote the truth, Regardless of what it costs us, regardless of what outsiders think of us, we are to hold fast, hold the line of God's truth. And as, as Francis Schaeffer has pointed out, as Luther pointed out, every, every moment in history, every culture that we come across, where we stand on that truth is going to come um, down to different things. And so we won't get into that. But standing fast and standing firm in God's truth is what the church should be doing, what the church should be standing for. So we have a corporate responsibility as the church to be the lampstand. Let's, let's, let's conclude. Conclude with the gospel. We've looked at outsiders and insiders. We looked at the line that separates the insiders from the outsiders, the line that separates disciples from admirers, followers from the crowd. But the important point to know is that that line is not impermeable. That line is not forever permanent Outsiders can become insiders. Those of us who are followers can indeed become disciples. When we look at something like Ephesians 2, and we see that we were children of wrath, we were by nature children of wrath, we were followers of the prince of the power of the air, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. The key words are were. When we look at something like 1 Corinthians 6, and we see that we were at one time idolaters, sexually immoral, etc., etc. The key word is were. We were, all of us, at one point in time, outsiders. 
We were, at one point in time, all of us, admirers instead of disciples, sinners instead of saints, haters of God instead of lovers of God. We were, at one point in time, on the outside looking in. But God, in his mercy, saved us. And so insiders were at one point in time outsiders. And that means there is hope for every single person. Because if God has saved somebody like me or you, not even knowing, you know, all of you and all the depths. If God has saved us, how can he not save others? It has nothing to do, I'm not saved because I was great. Second, we all fail at personal responsibility. We all fail at personal responsibility. We all fail at remembering that it is the Lord who brings kingdom growth. We all fail at that and think that we can do something to get more people here. And therefore we fail as a body at being a lampstand for the lamp and we fail at holding up the true Christ and the word of truth for others to see. We all fail. But as we talked about this morning, as I will get to talk about until I'm dead, in Jeremiah 3, verse 22, God says, Turn back, and I will heal your faithfulness, faithlessness. Every time we fail, no matter how badly, no matter how far, because of the blood of Christ, God says, turn back and I will heal your faithlessness. And so every time we fail, we turn back to Christ. We turn back to God and we say, yes, I have failed. But I come because I need to be healed of my faithlessness. And so as much as we fail as people who don't take our responsibility seriously when it comes to personal growth or we do too much to try to get people to come to church and we try to do too much to save them ourselves or whether we fail as a body to be the lampstand for the lamp God in his mercy welcomes us back to heal our faithlessness so we pray for that there's more than I can say, but I'll end there. I've gone a little long again. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we have breath in our lungs. That though afflicted, we rejoice in your truth and in your goodness. That though beat down, we hold fast to your promises. That when we fail, we can come back to you and repent and turn. And that you heal our faithlessness, that you bring us back, that you, even though you have plucked up and broken down, Lord, that you will once again plant. And so we turn to you. We thank you that in Christ, 
we have forgiveness of our sins, that in Christ we are lifted up, that in Christ we are no longer condemned, that in Christ we are just and whole and clean. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' precious name and for his sake we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Embers in the Dark. Enjoy your week.